We are starting a brand new series today, and you are here at the right time. Uh, I will give you all that information as we go on, but I will merely say this. Our brand new series called Being Jesus launches with a message entitled, Behold, the Incarnation of God. So take out your Bibles. Here we go. We are going to be in the book of Luke. The way that this morning is going to work is that it's going to begin academic. It's going to end in the word with conviction. So if you are a note taker, you might get ready to go with me. I'm going to talk really, really fast. Although I've had no caffeine, I still have the incredible spiritual gift of talking way too fast. So when you go through this and you're going to think, man, I'm having a hard time tracking with this guy. You're going to need to listen to this message multiple times to be able to pull out all the information that I'm going to drop on you. However, it is going to be one of those base messages where you always return back and go, wait, what are we talking about again? It's going to be a lot of that. So let's begin by talking about the oddity of Jesus Christ. He dies approximately AD 30, 33, depending on how you view history and how the scholars talk about it. And yet within 30 years, Christianity has already taken root in all of Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey, has already infiltrated all of Greece and had already taken root in Rome. By 380 AD, 350 years later, it is the primary religion of the Roman Empire. I know that for us, Jesus is a big deal. But let's remember, not everybody thought so. He was an obscure guy from an obscure town in an obscure part of the world. Nobody knew him outside of his hometown. And yet in a very short amount of time, he took the world by fire. Many people have come and they have said... They are the Messiah. Many have come and have said that they're the next king. Many have come promoting all types of power and prophecy and miraculous. And yet none of them have transformed the world like Jesus Christ. So who is this man? What is it about him that transforms so many lives? You are all here because of Jesus Christ. For one reason or another, he has collided with your life and you either love him or hate him. So I want to begin by sharing probably the most famous quote about Jesus, certainly my favorite quote about Jesus Christ from one of my favorite authors, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. In 1942 to 1944, he did a series of messages on the BBC radio. And in those, he was talking about the basics of Christianity. That was then compiled into three different pamphlets. And then in 1952, it was compiled into a book called Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis had this to say, and I can't imagine anyone saying it better, so why try? He said this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. No matter what you make of Jesus, the fill in the blank in front of you is true. Jesus was no ordinary man. Jesus was no ordinary man. For the next two years... It is this Jesus I will proclaim to you. I've never in the history of my ministry ever taught a series for two years. So what is it about? Well, I've already taught in the past, Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, and John. However, I've never taught them all at the same time. For the next two years, we are going to blend the four gospels in stereo. We have deconstructed the entire gospels, rearranged them into primary chronology, but sometimes thematic. And what we will do is sit in a room with four men who knew Jesus very well and allow them to tell the stories together. What that does, it allows four different perspectives with different personalities to talk about the man whom we say we love the most. So for two years, we learn about his miracles, his teaching, his life, his death. So make no mistake, when you bake in Jesus for two years, it's going to rattle your cage. Why? Because the heart of discipleship means this. In Hebrew thought, a disciple was to copy the master in lifestyle. That means you are not done until you do what your master does. We are going to sit in a world of the supernatural. We're going to sit in a world of radical help to those hurting, those oppressed, those challenged, those left behind. Our goal in this is not merely to think more thoughts about Jesus, become more academically knowledgeable about Jesus. It's to do what Jesus did. That means it's going to cause an awful lot of change in our lives. What you will find out very rapidly is the Christianity that we live in modern day America is embarrassingly dissimilar to true Christianity of scripture. And what we find is that the games that we are playing are unacceptable in the eyes of God. So some will not be able to handle the series for the sheer purpose that we don't want to change. You will bail out. Some of us will fall in love with Jesus even more as we begin to see the power of the Holy Spirit coming through his ministry and realize that all the authority that the father had given to him, he then hands to his disciples. And you begin to realize that it is now upon his church, upon his body to carry out the works that Jesus did to begin to move and press the kingdom and to storm the gates of hell. That is a Christianity worth living. And that is what we will talk about. So who are these four men that write these four Gospels? Well, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means similar or seeing it from the same way. They're incredibly similar. They have a lot of the same stories. As a matter of fact, at times, they actually have lines verbatim from one to the other. And you have to ask yourself, why are they so similar? If really three different guys wrote three different accounts, how did they get the exact same phrasing? Well, it's probably based on these thoughts. First of all, it is believed by most scholars that Mark wrote first. So although we have it as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark actually went first. It is believed that Matthew and Luke borrowed heavily from Mark. So once he got his locked down, they grabbed his and began to work from that document. Additionally, there was oral tradition and because they're using exact same lines that Mark doesn't use, It's believed there may have been a document that we don't have any longer where people had recorded the teachings of Jesus. That document by scholars is referred to as Q. Kind of lame, but it is based on a German word that starts with Q, which means source. So if they're trying to find out the mysterious source, they call it Q. That's it. The Gospels are written in a very specific way that if we do not understand, we're going to lose the whole context. So let me give you a couple ideas on these Gospels. They are all written in Greek. We do not have any of the original autographs. We do not have the actual documents that were written down by the authors. What we have is a 
huge variety of manuscripts. All the manuscripts are in Greek, but it is believed that possibly Matthew, who was a Jew writing to Jews, actually wrote in Aramaic. And then it was translated to Greek, but we only have the Greek portions from that. They were written 30 to 60 years after the death of Jesus. Why would you wait 30 to 60 years to write about the most important person in your life? Well, there's a very easy reason. Everybody was still alive. When you want to talk about an amazing story about how Jesus cast eight demons out of someone, you don't write it down. You go ask them because they're your next door neighbor. When you want to talk about how after Jesus Christ came back to life and graves were opened and people came back to life and walked around the city, you don't write about it. You go ask Rick, who works at the shopping mall. It was him. The whole idea is there's no point in writing it down when everybody's still here. Everybody's still talking about it. But once you found that the disciples, the apostles were getting martyred and they were getting shut down and there was almost a danger of losing some of the eyewitness accounts, now you start locking it down. Now what's fascinating is that some of Paul's writing was before the Gospels. You never think of it that way. But let me give you kind of an idea. Paul wrote three of his letters before Mark wrote his gospel. He wrote six books before Luke, 15 before Matthew, and all of his was done by the time John got around to it. So the whole idea that they had the gospels, then they got Paul's writings is incorrect. It was kind of the other way around. Perhaps the most important thing to remember when you're reading biographies is that ancient biographies are not at all like modern day biographies. When we write a biography, we start at the beginning and we try to share their life all the way through and give fascinating details that give you more facts and answer more questions. Ancient biographies don't care about any of that. Their whole purpose in writing is to get you to become enamored with the person they're writing about so you'll change to become just like them. All the Gospels are written for the very purpose of orchestrating information to make a point so you'll fall in love with Jesus and you'll become just like him. That's the whole purpose. So a couple other thoughts. Every one of the Gospels have a really long account of the arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because that was the central story as to why Jesus came. So we can talk about all the other stuff along the way. But who Jesus was, was the one that came to die for the sins of the world. So that you might have life. So let's talk about them one by one. We start with Matthew. And by the way, the reason that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in that order... Nobody knows. There's only one hypothesis that is fascinating and interesting, and I'll actually buy it. But remember, it is likely that Mark wrote first, then Luke, then Matthew, then John. And if that's the case, why are they all scrambled up? Because some scholars believe the last book in the Old Testament is not Malachi. It is Second Chronicles. And you're like, wait, what? Come on. Remember, the Old Testament is not chronological either. It was grouped into similar books. You got the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the Torah. Then you have all the, what, history books gathered together. And then you have all the wisdom literature gathered together. Then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. It has nothing to do with when it happened. It has to do with, are you like the other book? If that is the case, what was the last book that was actually recorded down, locked down, and that they accepted as being the last book, and that was Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles ends with the genealogy, Matthew begins with the genealogy, and that's how the two unite together. Let's talk about them one by one. Matthew was an eyewitness. Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews, and he was all about the Old Testament. In his book, you will find constant quotations of prophecy. Prophecy. 
Why? His whole point in writing the gospel, his whole bent was to show you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one they had been waiting for, for all this time. The one that comes down to us through Abraham as a Jew, down through David. So no wonder he begins with a genealogy because Jews dig genealogies. He is the one that tries to express that Jesus Christ, like Moses gave us the law, Jesus is the one greater than Moses, so he reinterprets the law. And that's why you have so much of the discussion like the Sermon on the Mount. Interestingly enough, that tie in with Moses, one of the commentators made this fascinating comment. He said, Matthew is the only one that puts a Sermon on the Mount on the Mount. He's the only one that puts him on the side of a mountain. Why would he do that? Because Moses got the law on a mountain. So Jesus reinterpreted the law on a mountain. You begin to find that all of them began to move and put things into themes and they would slide things around to make a point. And Matthew's whole point was he's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. A couple side notes on that is Matthew contains most of Mark. And then shortens it. Matthew and Luke together share up to 250 verses that aren't in Mark at all. Matthew has 300 verses of his own. So this guy has quite a bit to say. And there's a lot of his teachings in there. What about Mark? Mark was actually John Mark. We all know him kind of as the famous young kid that got caught up in this tremendous drama between two big dogs, Paul, the apostle and Barnabas, the apostle, uh, excuse me, the prophet. And now you have these two guys going out on missionary journeys and John Mark comes along. And then one day John Mark wimps out. You remember this? He said, I can't go on that journey. I'm never going to make it. That scares the living daylights out of me. I'm out. Well, after that. Barnabas said, say, okay, so Paul, we're going on our next journey. We bring in John Mark. No way. That kid's a pansy. I'm not taking that kid. What? Paul, come on, dude. He's my cousin. I don't care. That kid can't pull his own weight. He's out. Well, you know what? I'm taking him. So I guess you and I are going to part ways. That John Mark ended up hanging out with some of the most amazing men in all of history. He was in the very center of it. Oddly enough, He ends up into the vortex of Peter. He becomes Peter's interpreter, Peter's secretary. He ends up recording. And so the book of Mark is Peter's account, the eyewitness. So remember, Jesus had the 12, then he had the three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was the loudmouth. He was the one that was kind of the impulsive one, the one that became the head of the church moving forward. John Mark heard everything from him and began to write it down and lock it in. He was writing, he was writing to the unreligious Gentile population of Rome and his whole point, Jesus is the perfect servant that can redeem the world. The perfect servant. He will show you that Jesus Christ in his humanity begins to rise up and do everything the father says and the father empowers him with the Holy Spirit and all the power begins to erupt in his life because he is the one that is sacrificial. He's the one that is obedient. He's the one that has his whole life poured out for his father. Mark will include a lot of human traits of Jesus while also talking about the greater purpose of dying for the sins of the world. One of his main themes is answering the question, who is Jesus? He talks about, this is what Pilate thought about Jesus. This is what the Pharisees thought about Jesus. This is what the disciples thought about Jesus. This is what the demons thought about Jesus. This is what the father thought about Jesus. And he will keep answering the question, who was Jesus Christ? It's on every page. It's the action gospel. It's the one that you get into and it moves very rapidly. It's the page turner. Not a lot about what Jesus taught. It's an awful lot about what Jesus did. It is the miracle gospel. Mark records more miracles than any of the other ones. Out of 661 verses, one third deal with miracles. 200 of his verses deal with the miraculous. What about Luke? Luke's a doctor. He traveled with Paul. 
The good doctor was probably the most educated out of the four. He was the one that did a lot of schooling. He's the one that was very organized. If we're going to talk about any of them having a chronology or an order to it, it's going to be Luke. So when we deconstructed all of the Gospels, we use Luke as a base. And I keep saying we. It's not like I I have voices in my head and then I'm doing this in my office going, yes, that's a good idea. When I say we, I mean that I went up into a retreat and I brought three of our big dog Bible teachers in this room. And I mean Ryan Haynes, the head of our uh, Bridgeway Young Adults Ministry. Pastor Matt Bach, who's the head of our high school ministry. Uh, Pastor Eric Upton, who's in charge of our middle school ministry. They are all Bible teachers. They teach on a weekly basis. We went away on a retreat and we pulled them all apart and we determined that we were going to begin with a foundation of Luke and begin to build on top of that. So Luke, his whole point in writing is this. Jesus is the perfect man and the one that brings salvation to everyone. He is the every man's gospel. Yeah, he's brilliant. His Greek is the best. Yes, he's the most organized. But here's what he wants to talk about. Jesus is for women. In a culture where women were not respected nearly enough, it was Luke that will include the woman at the well. It's Luke that will talk about all the women in Jesus's ministry. It was Luke that kept giving honor and anointing and validity to the women. It was Luke that would talk about the poor and say there's danger in being rich. That's Luke. He would talk about the oppressed, those that were shoved down, those that were forgotten, those that were stuffed into the corner. He would talk about how Jesus would hang out with tax collectors and sinners. He's the one that would talk about how Jesus was always embracing the little children when no one thought they had any value in society. He would explain that Jesus died for the every man, not merely the intellectuals, not merely the super spiritual. Jesus died to rescue you. Luke is passionate about letting us know that Jesus is the perfect Greek man in thought and that he is our human representative. So wouldn't it make sense that his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam and not merely through David? Listen, all this is purposeful. Everything they're doing. Luke is the prayer gospel. Luke is the forgiveness gospel and the Holy Spirit gospel. If you want to read about the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus... Read Luke. Why? He starts at the baptism. He comes out of the 40 days of temptation filled with the power of the Spirit. And by the end, he hands that Holy Spirit off to the disciples. If you want to talk about a guy that won't shut up, it's Luke and me. (laughs) Luke wrote two volumes. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and then he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. Two books, one guy make up 28% of the entire New Testament. Over one-fourth of the entire New Testament is Luke. And he's trying to write an organized account on purpose. He's descriptive, he's dramatic, and about 520 verses in Luke have no parallel in any other gospel. What about John? He's the other eyewitness. You had Matthew, the tax collector, who used to be known as Levi. He was the eyewitness. And now you have John. He's an eyewitness. Remember the inner three, Peter, James, and John. It's believed that he was the youngest of all the disciples. He's the one who got to lean back on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. John is the one where at the end he's walking along behind Peter when they have their special dialogue of Peter being reinstated. And Peter has to turn around and go, yeah, my buddy here. What about him? And Jesus said, I'll take care of him. That's none of your business. John was the only one that was not of the 12 martyred. He actually lived likely all the way up into his 90s, perhaps to 100 years old. They tried to kill him. Tradition has him trying to be martyred. It just didn't work. 
So they then exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's one of the most fascinating, bizarre, weird stories in all the Bible. The book of Revelation was through this guy, John. It was John who at the foot of the cross, Jesus said, hey, buddy, I'm stepping out. I need you to watch over mom. And sure enough, John took Mary into his house and he lived in Ephesus, had a house for her, and they lived out their life to make sure that she was taken care of. Why did he select John? Well, it was his best friend. All right. You know another reason? John's mom and Jesus' mom were sisters. So he was his cousin. That makes it a lot easier. Mary and Salome were sisters. So why not keep it in the family and make sure that she's taken care of? John is weird. John is the odd gospel. He's the one that kind of screws everything up. When you're trying to put this all in order, John throws order out the window. And as a matter of fact, seems to try to contradict everybody else. Why? Well, history, tradition actually has a lot of writings why John wrote the way that he did. Check this out. It says that John, being older in life, having seen the other three gospels and realized, man, the guy's nailed it. Why do I need to write another gospel? He did not write until the urging of his friends. They're like, John, dude, I don't know how much time left you got, but you've already used up all nine lives. So uh, I think you're going out soon. So we need to know what you have to say. I mean, you're brilliant when you talk and, and yeah, you're a simple guy, but really deep gospel. We need from you. We need your account. And he's like, all right, I'll do it if we do this as a team. I want you to bring everything you got. I want you to research whatever you got, bring it all to me. We'll put this thing together and we'll write about a few different things than the other guys. One interesting viewpoint is that many scholars believe that he wrote about the early time of Jesus's ministry while all the other gospels wrote about the later time. Now, what's so fascinating about that is that if you read only John's gospel, it makes it sound like Jesus spent his whole ministry in the south by Jerusalem, which we know is not the case. We know that his whole hub was in the north. He's from Galilee. He walks on the Sea of Galilee. He's the Galilean guy. So how in the world does John have all his stories happening in the south? Why, when was Jesus ever there? According to John, all the time. But here was the ancient historian's view on why that is. This is how John would say it. Hey, I looked at the other boys. They always talk about Jesus' fancy stuff. You're right. That's awesome. That's good. But they already got that nailed down. They all talk about it later on. Do you realize that when we first started our ministry with Jesus, we were in the south a whole lot. We were in the area of Judea by Jerusalem. Why? Because we're trying to engage the people of Jerusalem. We were doing all our ministry around there, trying to get things going. And they were super cool to us initially. They didn't know who we were. They're trying to figure out what about all these miracles and signs. Everything was fine till John the Baptist got busted. When John the Baptist angered the king... And he got thrown in prison, all the heat came down on us, and we all went north. And we spent the whole rest of our ministry time in the north. And that's where the boys wanted to talk about their stories. Listen, the way this whole thing is constructed is sounds crazy and complicated, but simply put, we're studying the life of the most fascinating man ever. But he's no ordinary man. John's whole point in writing his gospel is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He will go out of his way to talk about Christ being exalted and people not being a big deal. He won't even use the name Mary for Jesus's mom. Why? He calls other women Mary. He's not anti-Mary. Why won't he mention her name? Because even in his day, people started putting too much emphasis on Mary. And he said, you know what? I'll refer to her as Jesus's mom. She can be my aunt, but we're not going into this whole, she's a big deal thing. We're not doing that. Oh, John the Baptist, who also was a cult leader, meaning everybody was all excited about John the Baptist because Jesus said he was hardcore. You know what? That guy can't even untie Jesus's sandals. If we want to talk about that. Interestingly enough, there is no recorded interaction or mention of demons in the book of John. Why? 
because he doesn't care about any other powers. There's my Jesus and my Jesus alone. Nobody is trying to compete with my Jesus. I don't care about those guys. I don't care about what's going on. You know what? When we'll walk in, we'll cast it out. I'll do what I need to do, but that's got nothing to do with me focusing on what I'm trying to tell you. My Jesus is the son of God and he can transform your life. Last thing I'll say on that is that John wants you to know that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love. You cannot finish his gospel without realizing that you are loved, cherished, cared for, protected, and that he wants a relationship with you that is personal and deep. As much as he's a storyteller, it's interesting that John doesn't include any parables. You always think about Jesus always talking in parables. John's like, well, whatever. Maybe he did. I'm sure he did. I don't want to talk about it. They're all confusing anyway. All right. So four gospels, one account, two years baking in Jesus. This is not, as I said, merely academic. It is life-changing transformation. There are pros and cons to doing it this way. The pro is that we get big themes. You get a chance to hear all their perspectives on who Jesus was. That in my mind is fantastic and brilliant and exciting. However, the con is that you're pulling them out of context. There's a reason why they put that story there. And when you start moving it, It ruins their whole point in telling you the story. I will try to bring that richness out in commenting on it, but we're really hijacking the process. So you go, well, if you're going to do, why, why, maybe we should do it the other way. Oh, I already did it the other way. If you're interested in the specific context of the gospel, you can listen to all that teaching. But for now, we're going to grab the big picture view, the aerial view and begin to see what Jesus did. And who he was. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1 verse 1. Let us begin our journey together. It's page 844 in the Bridgeway Bibles. If you need a little bit of help there. Luke chapter 1 verse 1. As Luke begins his story. Remember he's the organized one. He's the only one that seemed to care. About the little western mindset of wanting details. So he wrote it like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, meaning all the apostles and Paul, it seemed good to me also, Luke the doctor says, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That is the word, uh, the description of a high Roman official. So he's talking to somebody that's very important, very wealthy. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. All right, this is where it becomes personal. For the first 1,500 years, Jesus has been spread by word of mouth and not using mass media. How in the world we have relegated it to mass communication, to letting everyone hear about it in church and not out of your own mouth is absurd. The best way for someone to hear about Jesus is through your personal testimony. They need to know that someone they trust really was impacted by Jesus. Not that some teacher that they don't know standing up on a stage somewhere can give them facts about a guy they don't know. They need to know that you, their neighbor, that you, the person sitting in the cubicle next to them, actually was impacted by Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel is supposed to be shared. Here's what I want us to realize. You are not coming to church to hear information only applicable to you. You do not read the Bible only for you. You do not study the Bible only for you. You study the Bible for everyone around you. That means 
I want you to find out the answers to questions you're not even asking. Why? Because someone you love is going to ask you that question. That means we always read and don't go, well, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to me? You know what? That's a pretty selfish way of looking at it. Hey, read the Bible and go, how does this apply to everyone? And then now you have it locked into your repertoire so that when your neighbor is suffering and hurting and scared and lost, you can share that truth with them. Do you remember that I shared with you and dropped a bit of a bomb on you that I was going to challenge everyone to go lead someone else through the knowledge of Jesus? I've postponed it only for this reason. I'll teach you, but then you teach someone else. You bake in this. I'll give you six months and then it's your time. Your job is to tell people what you know, but please tell it in a regular way about real life and allow them to hear your heart makes all the difference in the world. Turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 30, John 20, 30 page 906. As John is wrapping up his account of Jesus's life, he makes these comments about what he wrote and why he wrote it. This is what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you, the one reading and studying, may believe, know, trust, and with confidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the promised Messiah and Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Are these gospels exhaustive? Absolutely not. Is this all that Jesus did? Well, you know what? Jesus only did this many miracles. You don't have a clue how many miracles Jesus did. You don't know how many lepers were touched. You only have a sampling of some of the things that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, some of us, and I'm going to raise my hand on this one, are a little Bible fanatic. Some of us get a little bit creepy in how we view our Bibles. We keep thinking in some way this contains God. Guess what? It does not. God is in this. This is the bar, but it is not all that God is. It's way more than that. God is has more to say. It's the reason why we're Christians today. God is still speaking. God is still healing. God is still doing miracles. God is still dropping out the Holy Spirit to his people. God is still crushing the works of Satan. God is still advancing his kingdom. That is all real. That's why we are Christians today. Is the Bible important? Absolutely. Does it contain everything? Absolutely not. Turn with me to 2124, John 2124. Did you notice that he said the only reason we included these samplings is so you would get saved? And not just saved, that you would have vibrant, victorious life as you copy Jesus. That's why we're doing this. He's not doing it so you can win another Bible trivia challenge. He's doing it so we will be different people. All right. Verse 24 of chapter 21. Speaking of himself, this is a disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Remember, he died at 33. We only have two stories of the first 30 years. You have his baby account. You have a 12 year old account. Other than that, absolute obscurity. So everything you're about to read, everything we're about to study has to do with years 30 to 33. A three year span transformed everything. Turn with me to John chapter one, verse one. We close with this passage. John chapter one, verse one, perhaps the deepest of all passages. As a matter of fact, this one, even though John writes in very simple grammar normally, this beginning is different. There's something in how it's orchestrated. The concepts that it's about to drop out on you are stunning. 
because he's going to talk about his Jesus from a whole different perspective. This is how he says it. In the beginning was the logos. Logos means word. It's, it's a Greek word. It's kind of one of those famous ones, kind of like agape, right? Logos. Have you ever heard that before? You got to lock that one down in your mind because it's kind of important. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, meaning eternally there. And the logos was God, meaning of the same mind, the exact representation of. And he, whoever this Logos figure is, was in the beginning with God, meaning we now have a personality to it. It's not a force, it's a he. All things, all reality, all universe were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So whatever this Logos thing is, it's a big deal. Now you're looking and you're going, John, you're just trying to sound fancy and you're confusing me. It sounds a lot like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> In the beginning was this and this was this and that was that, right? Well, here's what he's doing. He's actually simplifying and here's why. He's trying to minister to people of Greek mindset. Even though Rome ran the land, they were of Greek mindset. They were Hellenists. They carried Greek philosophy and the Greeks believe very strongly in a thing called logos they actually used it in all their big philosophy writing it was their word he was grabbing their word and trying to tell them about their word their word said this everything you see here in this reality is a pale comparison to the real the real is somewhere out there in a whole nother realm that whatever that is that mind of god kind of thing it created everything it sustains everything it is the ultimate fabric of our existence john said yeah that i want to introduce you to him do you remember when paul was walking through athens and he saw all these idols all these different things to many gods and he walked around and he's totally troubled and then he comes upon one in the middle of the town and it says to the unknown god He's like, oh, there we go. Walks up onto Mars Hill and he says, you guys, I'm walking through your city and I see all this stuff and I see it to the unknown God. I want to tell you about him. You don't even know him yet. That's how you minister. You grab something that is familiar to people and you put a face and a personality behind it. He grabbed Logos and said, y'all think that's the biggest deal? All right, let me tell you who he is. His name's Jesus. He also captivated the Jews with the phrase word. Why? Because to Jews, words aren't just words. Let me give you a couple examples on why. They believe that words are powerful and they are a creative force. That when they come out of your mouth, they take on a personality and get things done. Here's an example. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Remember, they're twins. One's hairy and fuzzy. Remember? He liked one more than the other. One was the older one because he came out first. And then the other one was the younger guy. So Esau was the older one. Jacob was the younger one. When he's about to die, he wants to bless his sons. But the younger son, through his mom, deceives him and pretends to be the older kid. Remember that? He blesses him. And then later, the older kid shows up and goes, Dad, I'm here for your blessing. And he's like, what? I already blessed you. He's like, no, you didn't. That was my brother. He's like, oh, and he's like, dad, you got to give something to me. He's like, sorry, dude. I already said it. I can't take it back. It already came out of my mouth. And he goes, well, you got to have something for me. He can't take it back in Jewish mindset. That beautiful prophetic blessing already came out and began to do stuff. It's why the Bible talks about God's word goes out and it does not return void. Why? It's already moving. It's already changing things. As a matter of fact, they were so enamored with this concept of, of word that, that in the Old Testament, they would talk about it being wisdom personified. Like it was actually a woman walking through with all that you desire, desire wisdom. She is glorious. She is wonderful. They were all caught up in this concept of words. Is it any wonder that in the New Testament, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Why? Because to a Jew, say it, make it real. 
If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Say it. Make it real. The word was a big deal to the Jews, and the word was a big deal to the Greeks. So why not grab that word and let them know who the word is? And that word is Jesus. It says this, in him, in this logos was life. 35 times in John, he uses the word life. Here's what he means. It's a Greek word that we think of as Zoe. It's not just more of what we got right now. It's not this garbage where we're like, oh man, life is a struggle and then we die and blah, blah, blah. We're frustrated. It's not that. Zoe is real life. It's God kind of life. It's actually coming alive. According to scripture, if you don't have Jesus, you're the walking dead. You actually don't have the God life. The, the whole thing is not even ignited in you. And so you're walking around, oh, you're doing stuff and you're talking and you're engaging and you're making your plans. The problem is God isn't even ignited in you yet. But this logos in him is that igniting, that life, the eternal God kind of living that comes alive. And that life was what made men aware that they were disconnected from God. And needed him desperately. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I get how the world looks. I get how everything looks messed up. But let me remind you, our Jesus Christ is on the throne. The darkness will not win. Let me use a quick analogy. You go into a dark closet and you turn on the light. Have you ever seen darkness fight back? Absolutely not. Why? Because when pure light hits, darkness flees. Period. Why do you think all the demons screamed out, Jesus, why are you here? Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They full well know who Jesus is. They know darn well that there is no competition. When the light comes into the world, the darkness begins to scatter. Now, they're going to hold on. They're going to try to stay around. Why? Because we end up giving them all kinds of authority in our world and in our life and keep telling, no, 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 Jesus, hang on. I got this one, right? So we got all kinds of damage and garbage going on. We're in a broken world. But know this, we are in the kingdom now and we are in the kingdom of not yet. That means that God is breaking out all over the place and we are the instruments of his righteousness. The Holy Spirit has come that we might carry out the kingdom of God on his behalf. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And when he shuts him down, he says, kids... Go take them out. There was a man sent from God, verse 6, whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe. The phrase believe is used 70 times in John. Kind of an important word. Understand, believe does not mean merely believing facts. It means not only believing the facts, but trusting in the character of the one who said it, And then changing your life because of it. So there's no such thing as believing in something and not living differently. You cannot say you believe in Jesus and remain the same. You actually don't believe. You merely are interested in. That's different. Belief always involves trust and change. If there's no trust and change, there's no belief. He bore witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light for the true light. It's all this light talk. John says it 21 times. Light chases darkness, reveals how things really are and guides us back to God. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Who was that? Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't even know him. He came to his own, to the Jewish people. His own people didn't receive him. Verse 12 is a kicker, but to all, that's us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
that amazing uncaused cause, the prime mover, the logos, the reality behind the reality took on humanity and flesh. Behold the incarnation of God. And we have seen his glory, John said. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I had said to you, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now no one has ever seen God in all of his full Trinitarian power. But the only God, the Logos, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What does it all mean? It's pretty simple. Pick a side. There is no fence. There's a chasm. There's a big old hole. Bible says if you're not for him, you're against him. Pick a side. You don't get to play the middle. You don't get to go, yeah, I like Jesus too. No, doesn't fly. Pick a side. Either you're gathering together or you're scattering abroad. Jesus is not interested in being kinda. He's everything. He's all. That's how it works. We are not messing around with a man that you can take or leave. We're messing around with God who will take you or leave you. We're talking about a whole different ball game here. So pick a side. If we're going to talk about Jesus, are you in or are you not? If we're going to talk about Jesus, are you willing to submit your life and transform into his image? Or are you still going to remain arrogant enough to think that you got that one? You don't even know what you're doing. As we read in God's word, that becomes fact and real for our lives. And we must change and morph and transform into his image. But pick a side. Let's not have any of this nonsense about Jesus was a nice guy. Jesus was God. And that makes all the difference. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful beginning In our lives, Lord, with this trek we're going to walk of learning about your son, Jesus Christ, and how you sent him as an ultimate demonstration of love, that we might be free, that we might be whole, that we might be alive for the first time. Jesus, I pray that everyone who can hear my voice, everyone in this room, everyone that hears this later, that not one would be uncaptivated by you. I pray that just as the word has gone out and it's already begun to create, it's already begun to do things because Holy Spirit, you make it happen. So Holy Spirit, we give you full reign in our lives. We give you full access in this church. We let you know that we know this is your house. You do what you want to do. You take us, you mold us. Your word says that you will reveal everything Jesus taught us, that you will reveal the Father to us, that you will show us what to do and how to do it. You will give us the power to get from here to there because right now we don't have it. We don't have energy enough to get up today much less be transformed into the image of the Son of God. And so, Holy Spirit, we submit under you and we ask that you would fill us, that you would engage us, that you would carry us, that you would transform us. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.